You're listening to audio from Seven Mile Road Church in Waltham, Massachusetts, just outside of Boston. If you'd like to check out more of our resources or learn more about our church, please visit sevenmilewaltham.com. Louis Zamperini, great Italian last name, was a survivor. Few people have experienced more near-death encounters than Zamperini and lived to talk about it. He was a World War II pilot. He survived months of flight training when others did not. You see, this was at a time when even the training for flight was precarious. He survived bombing missions under heavy fire. In fact, on one particular mission, his B-24 took nearly 600 bullets, and yet he made it out alive. On another mission, his plane went down into the Pacific Ocean due to mechanical failure. He survived the crash and survived to drift at sea on a small inflatable raft. Over the next 47 days, he was baked by the sun, tossed by violent storms. He drank whatever rainwater he could collect. He ate nothing but the fish he could catch with his bare hands and had to eat them raw. Sharks followed him and often leaped up to snatch him. This is literally my worst nightmare. And after 47 days, the longest anyone had ever survived, adrift at sea, he finally reached land, not to be saved, but to be captured and spend the next two years as a prisoner of war. And over the next two years, he suffered the pains of forced labor, starvation, disease, and torture. And when his camp was finally liberated, he was reduced to nothing but skin and bones. Now, his life has become a famous uh, a story of survival, and it's not difficult to see why. His biography, Unbroken, uh, has spent several uh, 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 consistent years on the New York Times bestseller list. And yet, after nearly 70 years after his return from war, Zamperini died on July 2nd, 2014, after a 40-day battle with pneumonia at 97 years old. See, we may survive situations and circumstances against all odds, but in the end, there really is no such thing as a survival story. See, for humans, under the curse of sin, death is undefeated. There are no survivors. And this morning, we're continuing in our series in Ecclesiastes called The Search for Meaning, And we see yet again that the preacher holds back no punches. He's direct. He's straightforward. He's taking an honest look at life under the sun. And I don't know if you've been with us so far after nine chapters. You see that death is a significant theme in this book. It comes up over and over. In chapter 1, we are told that our lives are very brief. Just a moment, a passing We told that we live in the fragment of time between forgotten and will be forgotten. Everything before us has been forgotten. We live just this little bit of time and then one day, given enough time, we will all be forgotten. And in chapter 2, the preacher says that the wise and the fool both suffer the same fate. In the end, everyone dies. Chapter 3, the preacher says that there's a time to be born and a time to die. 
Later in that same chapter, he says that from dust we come and to dust we shall return. Chapter 5 reminds us that we come into this world naked and empty-handed and will take nothing with us when we die. Chapter 6, the preacher tells us that our lives are brief and passing like a shadow. Chapter 7, he says the day of death is better than the day of birth. That the house of mourning is better than the house of feasting because coffins preach better sermons than baby cribs. Funerals have a way of helping us learn the difference between the trivial and the significant. Chapter 8, again, we see that morality does not offer a cure for mortality. See, page after page, chapter after chapter, Solomon is looking at the reality of death. He's coming to the end of life, and he knows that he has a looming date with death. And he's come to understand that no matter how wealthy and no matter how powerful you become, everyone will die. And in his wisdom, Solomon has come to understand that even though death is an unwelcome intruder into the world, even though death is an enemy against humanity, that death can also be a mentor to the living. That if we understand the weight and the finality of our death, that we can learn to live life backwards, to reverse engineer it, to live in light of the end. In other words, death can teach us how to live. Now as we come to chapter 9, we're coming to the end of the book and he's starting to wrap things up. He's starting to draw some conclusions and we get his most extended treatment on death. And in many ways, this chapter is like a commentary on Psalm 90 verse 12. It's a psalm written by Moses and he says, Lord, teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. That's what he's doing here. He's, he's trying to teach us how do we number our days? How do we think about our time so that we don't get to the end of our life and have regrets? So there's going to be three lessons here as Solomon teaches us to number our days. The first lesson, we'll get it in verses 1 to 6. Here it is. You're going to die. In a culture where death is pushed to the margins... Have you noticed we outsource everything as it comes to death? Preparation, burial, we don't, we don't put our hands on that. It's all outsourced. And so what happens is we insulate and distract ourselves from death. And in a culture that pushes death to the margins, we need to remember there are no survivors and everyone is going to die. That's the first lesson. Second, in verses 11 to 12, Solomon's going to say, you don't know when. So not only are you going to die, but you don't know when. Now we're going to skip, if you notice, we skipped over a section because we're going to skip to the end because it talks about the timing of death and it tells us nobody knows. The timing of death is uncertain. So first lesson, you're going to die. Second lesson, you don't know when. And here's the third lesson in verses 7 to 10. Enjoy your life. See, in typical Hebrew writing style, you would put the most important thing in the middle. And so I've put it at the end because we're all Westerners and in the Western mindset you save the best for last. But in, in Hebrew argument, it's like a sandwich. You put the good stuff in the middle, okay? And so here in the middle of this section, the preacher says, listen, this is kind of the, the most important thing. Like you're going to die. You don't know when. So here's what I want you to know. Enjoy your life. Come to grips with reality that one day 
You are going to die, and you don't know when. So seize the day. Enjoy your life. Let's start at the beginning in verse 1, and we'll see the first lesson that you're going to die. Verse 1 again, he says, But all this I laid to heart, examining it all. So what the preacher is saying is he spent time over his life allowing the weight of death to properly settle on his heart. That's what he means. He's, he's laid it to heart. You know, when something is, is heavy, it's got weight to it, it's significant, you feel it. See, this first lesson isn't new information. Not only has he said it before, but you didn't really need me to tell you today that you're going to die. Like, I'm, I'm sure that's not new information for you. It's actually a reality that we come to understand really early in life. That we are going to die. But the preacher's goal is not to give you new information as if the thing holding us back was we just need new information. That's rarely the case. What he's doing is giving, he wants us to take what we already know and apply it to our lives in a way that changes the trajectory and the depth of our life. See, that's what wisdom is. Wisdom is rarely, if ever, new information. But information that actually begins to inform how we lie, how we live. In other words, information that leads to transformation. That's wisdom. So he's under no guise that he's telling you new information. Like, like oh, I didn't know I was going to die. But he's hoping that we take that information and apply it to our lives. So he goes on to say, continuing in verse 1, The righteous and the wise and their deeds are in the hand of God. Whether it is love or hate, man does not know, both are before him. So this statement, uh, he's, he's kind of done this throughout the book, but it's, it's him railing against a karmic way of seeing life. We're, we, we all just kind of have this natural bent that life works according to karma. So that you can and should expect good things to result from good behaviors. It's a simple formula. You do good and you should expect good things to follow. You do bad... And you can expect bad things to follow. And what makes this tricky is that you can find examples of this in your life. Where you, you, you sowed some kind of kindness out there. And then kindness was brought back to you. I think of like the, the whole pay it forward thing. You remember these videos of people? They'd pull up in the line at Starbucks and they'd say, hey, I'd like to pay for my drink and the person behind me. You know what I mean? And then the guy pulls up and it's like, hey, pay it forward. They paid for your drink. And then it goes on and on and on and on and on until someone just goes, oh, hey, thanks. That's awesome. And they drive off and kindness dies. The Bible even says things like this. You reap what you sow. You get what you sow into the ground. And many times life does follow this general principle. And on the whole, it's a good idea to do good things. Problem is the exceptions. We see this over and over how bad things happen to good people. I mean, since there have been humans, people have asked, why is that? Why is that? And we also see how sometimes good things happen to bad people. You're like, why does this good thing keep happening to some of the most uh, terrible people? Sometimes... In a broken and sinful world, the righteous and the wise will suffer more than the unrighteous and the foolish. 
And remember, the same guy who's writing this book, Ecclesiastes, is the same guy who wrote the book of Proverbs. Proverbs is a book of wisdom. And its aim is teaching us to live a life of wisdom in a world as we would expect it to go. So Proverbs is saying, listen, on the whole, most of the time, if you'll, if you'll live this way, this is generally what you can expect. The book of Ecclesiastes is what happens in the exceptions. What do you do when life doesn't go as you might expect? It's for life in the exception. So verse 1 is basically saying you can't look at your circumstances, at what's happening around you, and use them as a barometer to discern God's love or hate, his favor or his judgment. So in other words, health and wealth do not equal God's love and favor. You can't look at your life and go, look, I'm healthy and I'm wealthy, so therefore God must favor me. That is not a good equation. That is not how it works. Nor does poverty and sickness mean God hates you or his favor isn't upon you. See, what he's saying is instead of looking to circumstances as a gauge of where you stand with God, the preacher says, trust that your life is in the hand of God. The faithful should expect that life will be filled with both favorable and unfavorable circumstances. We always go astray when we look around us to determine if he loves me. The, the, the preacher is saying, your life is in the hand of God. Don't look around you. He, he, he's not, it's not like he loves me, he loves me not. He loves me, he loves me not. Good things are happening, God must love me. Bad things are happening, God must hate me. That's not how it works. Our assurance is not in our circumstance, but in the reality that we are held safely in the hand of a loving and sovereign God. We'll keep talking more about that. Now let's go to verse 2. He says, it is the same for all, since the same event happens to the righteous and the wicked, to the good and to the evil, to the clean and the unclean, to him who sacrifices and him who does not sacrifice. As the good one is, so is the sinner. And he who swears is as he who shuns an oath. So as he develops his argument to prove his point that even the faithful experience favorable and unfavorable circumstances, he points to... A common reality, the most unfavorable circumstance and the most unfavorable event that happens to everyone. Everyone eventually dies. Even to the people out there that you're like, nothing bad ever happens to them. Something bad is going to happen to them eventually because everyone dies. The righteous and the unrighteous, the good and the bad, everyone dies. Morality is no protection against mortality. So the person who goes to church every week, who serves faithfully on several ministry teams, who tithes generously, who shares the gospel with his family and friends, and the person who openly mocks God, who thinks Christians are stupid, both of them will die. The person who volunteers at the homeless shelter and the person who steals from the convenience store, guess what? They're both going to die. The person who goes on prayer walks reads their Bible every day, and the person who cheats on their spouse will both die. The moral and the immoral, the good and the bad, the, dev the devout and the couldn't care less, every one of them will die. There are no exceptions. And why? Why is it that everyone dies? Well, he tells us in verse 3, this, talking about this, that the presence of death, is an evil that is done under the sun, that the same event happens to all. 
also. The hearts of the children of man are full of evil, and madness is in their hearts while they live, and after that they go to the dead. So what the preacher is doing here is adding to what he's already said. Remember, back in chapter 7, Ecclesiastes 7, verse 20, he says, Surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. He's talking about the universal reality of sin. Even the righteous, even the people you would look at and be like, I'm nowhere near holy, but they are. I mean, they, are, they, just, they just bleed holiness. And they're generally good in terms of outward appearances. And yet, they are still sinners. There is still sin in their hearts. There is no one, no one who is truly, fully, and perfectly righteous. No one. Ecclesiastes 7.29, he says, See this I, alone I have found, that God made man upright, but they have sought out many schemes. Remember when we talked about that? He said, God did not create us this way, that we were created upright. But all of us have, like sheep, gone astray. We have sought out many schemes. We have wanted to do it our own way. And here the preacher adds to what he's already said, and our hearts are full of evil. There is in fact a madness in our hearts due to sin. And so because we're sinners, because we're plagued by sin, the fate of all human beings is death. The Bible tells us that death is a result of sin. If you want to know why do people die, the answer is because we're sinners. It's a curse. It's a judgment. And as the result of Adam's sin, which we've inherited, and our own evil inclinations and sinful actions that we've participated in, because of that, death is certain and it is deserved. It's a proper judgment. Paul says it like this in Romans 6.23, For the wages of sin is death. You know what wages are? You go to work, you put in your time, and you expect to get a, a, a paycheck, right? It's a wage that you've earned. It's not a gift. It's something you deserve, right? It's something that you go, you know, like if a boss says, hey, uh, thank you, uh, you know, here's your paycheck. It, it's not a gift. You know what I mean? I mean, you could say, you know, you're welcome and it's, and it's fine to exchange those pleasures, but it's not like they're giving you something that you didn't earn. When you do a job, you should expect to get paid. That's what a wage is. So Paul is saying for what we've done, we earn and deserve our wage for our sin is death so against sinful humanity death is undefeated no one goes toe-to-toe with death and lives to survive until another day we were created in the image of god and as his image bearers we were made to live with him and for him for all eternity but because of sin and death we suffer the end. Sin and death cohabitate in our world as unwelcomed guests. And the preacher here strikes a good balance. On one hand, he calls death what it is. It's an evil. It's an intruder. And yet at the same time, he's drawing our attention. If we will be wise and think about our inevitable date with death, instead of letting that lead us to the point of unending despair... He says, what if, recognizing your coming death, you thought, well, how now do I want to live? Like, think about the day of death. Think about your, if every one of us is going to have a funeral. 
What do you want people to say about you? What do you want people to remember about you? In light of death, the trivial things become seen for what they are. Trivial, insignificant. Now before he gets to the specifics about how to live, he has a few more things to say about death. Look at verse 4. He says, but he who is joined with the living has hope. For a living dog is better than a dead lion. For the living know that they will die, but the dead know nothing and they have no more reward. For the memory of them is forgotten. Their love and their hate and their envy have already perished. And forever they have no more share in all that is done under the sun. What he's saying here is that when you live, you have hope. Because after you die, in terms of life under the sun, there is nothing Left And to prove his point, he gives us another analogy. He says, a living dog is better than a dead lion. Now you have to think for a minute like an Israelite, okay? Because at first you're like, well, I like dogs, so I don't get it. Okay, we live in a very dog-friendly culture. We love dogs. We treat them like members of the family. They make it in our family portraits. We spend billions, not millions, billions with a B on dogs in America. This is not how the Israelites viewed dogs. Dogs were more, like, were more wild than they were tame. You never went into a Hebrew home and they said, hey, here's our pet dog. They were mangy. They were unclean. Dogs were not pets. They were pests. Okay? And so it, like, get that in your mind. Okay? And he's saying a lion, which were considered to be spectacular animals. And I think that's still true today. Like when we see a lion, it's like, whoa, it's like royal, it's prestigious. There's a glory about a lion. And so here's the analogy. Even though dogs are mangy, unclean, a living dog is still better than a dead lion. Or maybe a way to think about it as Americans is like a living rat is still better than a dead lion. I know Kevin likes rats. He had pet rats as a kid. You can ask him about that later. In other words, what is he saying? Death is so ugly and so evil that even the most neglected and rejected who are alive are more superior to the prestigious and the powerful who are dead. Here's another way to think about it. So think about some random guy named Steve selling old iPhones on eBay. We'll call him eBay Steve, okay? He's living paycheck to paycheck. He's always hawking one thing and, 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 and trying to find these old cell phones. eBay Steve is better off than billionaire Steve Jobs who invented the iPhone. Why? Because Steve Jobs is dead. He's dead. He's gone. See, eBay Steve still has opportunity. He still has decisions in front of him. He still has hope. He, still, he can still grab hold of the day. There is still opportunity. But Steve Jobs can do nothing. Not with all his billions. Not with all his ingenuity. Why? Because Steve Jobs is dead. See, once you die under the sun, you're done. There's no mulligans, no redos, no do-overs, no second chance. Only the living have the chance to live. Once you die... That's it. Friends, death is certain. It's deserved because of sin. It is not a natural part of life. It's an evil intruder into God's good created order. 
and death brings an end to our life under the sun. And it is sad, but it's also inevitable. So the first lesson you need to learn about death in order to get a heart of wisdom is that you are going to die. You're going to die. Now, let's jump down to verse 11 to see the second lesson. You don't know when. Again, I saw under the sun that the race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong, nor the bread to the wise, nor riches to the intelligent, nor favor to all those with knowledge. But time and chance happen to them all. For man does not know his time. Like fish that are taken in an evil net and like birds caught in a snare. So the children of man are snared at an evil time when it suddenly falls upon them. Now here the preacher lists out several situations where the predictable doesn't happen. Did you see that? He's talking about exceptions that prove the rule. See, typically the race is won by the swift. Typically battle does favor the strong. Typically the wise are able to put food on the table. Typically the brilliant do get the highest paying jobs. And the well-educated do often become successful. So that's what you can typically expect. But Solomon says there is an unpredictability to life. Time and chance happen to us all and his main point is to say you don't know when you're going to die see we often live our life thinking I've got all my days ahead of me and we talk about it when I when I become this age or when I retire or when I do this and we talk so much about the future as if the race always goes to the swift as if the wise always lead happy and successful lives. And he's saying time and chance happen to us all. The timing of your death is uncertain. It's not uncertain to God, but it is uncertain to you and me. Just like birds don't know that they're flying into a trap. Fish don't know when they're going to be caught. Death is certain, but the timing of it is uncertain. Augustine of Hippo, the great theologian from North Africa said nothing is so certain as death and nothing so uncertain as the hour of death. This past year, in April, an NFL quarterback, Dwayne Haskins, died at the young age of 24. He was hit by a dump truck and pronounced dead on the scene. And as sport commentators and teammates talked about his tragedy, they said the same things that you and I often say. He died before his time. He had his whole life in front of him. But friends, this is the punch in the gut. The next meal you eat could be your last. In fact, the last meal you ate could have been your last. Life is fleeting. It's fragile. And no one, look at me, no one is guaranteed life into their 80s and 90s. No one. No one. James 4, 14. You do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are, you ready for this? A mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. You know when you take a hot shower, there's that steam. It's in the bathroom. It's here for a minute. Guess what? Then it's gone. That's what your life is. Here today gone tomorrow. If you don't believe me, go take a walk through Mount Feek Cemetery right off Maple. 
Look at the birth dates. Look at the death dates and do the math. You'll see that children die. Teenagers die. Young men and women in their 20s and 30s. People die in their 40s, 50s, and 60s. Death favors no decade. One day, and only God knows when, you are going to die. And the preacher wants you to let your inevitable and your eventual funeral preach a life-changing sermon to you right now. Friends, I'm not trying to be morbid. I'm just trying to maybe set the trajectory of your life in a different direction. If you think this sermon is all about death, then you're not listening. The whole point of this sermon is to consider how you're going to live. And that's exactly where he goes in verse 7. You're going to die. You don't know when. So the preacher says, enjoy your life. Verse 7. Go eat your bread with joy and drink your wine with a merry heart. For God has already approved what you do. Let your garments be always white and let not oil be lacking on your head. That first word, go, it's a command. It's meant to put uh, uh, a sense of urgency. Think of it like carpe diem, seize the day. Don't wait, go. Do it now. And what follows here from verses 7 to 10 is the sixth enjoyment passage of the book. You know, when you talk to people about Ecclesiastes, almost everyone overlooks how often he talks about enjoying life. In fact, when I tell uh, people we're preaching through the book of Ecclesiastes, everyone's like, oh, what a downer. Oh, what a morbid book. But seven different times Solomon's going to say, enjoy, enjoy. Enjoy. And the, word, and, the, and the number seven is not insignificant. In fact, there will be seven before it's all said and done. We're at the sixth. I've listed, listed all the passages. If you're the note takers in the room, write them down. Seven times he's going to talk about enjoying life. And it's no coincidence that he chooses the number seven. Seven in the Hebrew mindset is the perfect number. It's the ideal number. It's the wholeness number. It's the completed number. Seven times. He's going to say, enjoy. 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 Now let me state the obvious. You don't get to decide what is good and evil and what is right and wrong. You can't go, listen, he said to enjoy my life, so I'm going to live it how I want. That would be foolish. You can't do evil and wrong and justify it by saying, well, you told me to go enjoy my life. That's all I'm trying to do. I'm just trying to live my life. This is not a license to do whatever you want. At the same time, somehow there's been this notion that's creeped into the church that God is a killjoy. That he doesn't want us to have any fun at all. That he's looking around, looking for people who are laughing and being like, stop doing that. Don't enjoy this. That also runs contrary to the Bible. It's unbiblical. Here's the biblical life. In a nutshell, live wisely, live godly, and live joyfully. God has given us life to be a gift. Just as Solomon often reminds us of death, he often reminds us that life is a gift from God to be enjoyed. In fact, I think this passage is saying something profound. I think he's saying to not enjoy life, to go through life grumpy, frustrated, 
without joy is an implicit statement of ingratitude and ungratefulness to God. To live a life utterly void of joy is to be ungrateful to God for the gift of life. Now listen, that doesn't mean there's not going to be dark days. That doesn't mean there's not going to be bitter days. There is definitely a time for mourning and sorrow and grief. And just even like blah days, totally fine and acceptable. But on the whole, our lives are to be characterized by joy and gratitude. That said, if I could summarize verses 7 to 8, I would say it like this. Solomon says, go and savor the simple. So many times in order to have any kind of joy at all, we think we have to do extravagant, extraordinary things. And you know what he just said? Go enjoy your bread. Drink your wine with a merry heart. Though it doesn't say it explicitly, the words that are used here is picturing a meal with others. A meal with good food and good drink characterized by joy. A meal with family, a meal with friends. And these people at this dinner party are dressed nicely. They've got oil on their heads, which was like the ancient way of saying they dressed up. They put on their cologne. They were looking nice. They were dressed up smelling good. Now, it's true that food can just be mere sustenance. And sometimes you just need to, you know, have a meal just to get to to the next day. But it doesn't have to be just that. Food can be an opportunity for praise and gratitude to God. I think of Psalm 104. Verse 14 to 15, he says, he's speaking about God. He's praising him. He says, you cause the grass to grow for the livestock and plants for man to cultivate that he may bring forth food from the earth and wine to gladden the heart of man, oil to make his face shine and bread to strengthen man's heart. You hear what he just said? The psalmist is praising God that he causes grass to grow. Not so we can eat the grass. Who eats the grass? The livestock. Okay, then what happens? And then he says, when the grass eat the livestock, we get food. Okay, so let me put all that together. He says, God, I praise you for steak. That's what he just did. And you, you cause grapes to grow to, to give us wine and it gladdens our heart. A whole psalm is written to say, Lord, thank you for steak and Cabernet. I'm just reading the Bible, guys. That's what it says. See, food can be sustenance, but it can be so much more than that. It can be an opportunity for joy and gratitude. Not only that, food is an opportunity to be creative, to test the ingenuity of our God-given taste buds. Who put those taste buds there? God did. He could have just made everything uniform and monotone, but he didn't. Different spices hit the tongue differently, don't they? And we get to test out the limits of God's taste buds. And then we can turn around and praise him. Lord, that tastes good. And that is a goodness from you. Praise him. Food can be an opportunity to give someone a gift. To put your personality into a meal. I'm Italian. My love language is food. That's why I'm lingering here for a minute. One of the best ways I show people that I love them is by making a meal for them. It's an opportunity to invite someone into the private space of your home and say, welcome, sit, 
be filled at our tables. Food's an opportunity to go out, go to a nice restaurant every once in a while, and splurge. I'm serious. Drop some coin on a good meal. And praise the Lord for it. Solomon is saying, savor the simple things in life as gifts from God. Now he's using uh, cuisine uh, as like an example, but that's not the only thing he's talking about here. It's a way of saying, find the simple things in life and find, the sim- the, the, find in that simplicity a reason for praise to the Lord. Be present in that moment. Don't be distracted. Learn to enjoy the simple gifts of God. See, that kind of contentment is the mark of a grateful heart. Savor the simple. Now look at verse 9. He says, enjoy life with the wife whom you love all the days of your vain life that he has given you under the sun because that is your portion in life and your toil at which you toil under the sun. So not only does he say, savor the simple things in life, he also says, enjoy marriage. He's saying, husbands, delight in your wife. Wives, delight in your husband. Now listen, there will be days when this is easier said than done. Right? Some days it it just seems to flow easy. And other days you've got to really fight for it. But the goal of marriage, God didn't give us the gift of marriage to simply just combine two people's lives so that we could fill out joint tax returns. It's not just for an economical way of life. It's meant to be for companionship and depth of friendship and for delight and enjoyment. And listen, seeking depth with your husband or wife is not easy. In fact, I would say it's incredibly difficult. Why? Two sinners, right? Cohabitating together. It's going to be difficult. That said, it is a worthy endeavor. So friend, if you are married, here's what I know to be true about you. Your spouse is a gift from God. It's a gift to be enjoyed. It's a gift to be cherished. Be grateful and cultivate your marriage as such. Now, as I was studying for this passage this week, I also thought at Seven Mile, we have a good mix of married and single. So I want to say something to the single for a minute. This passage is not saying that the only joy in life is the married life. That's not what, that's not what he's saying. And so the implication is if that, if that were true, then you can't be joyful if you're not married. That's not what he's saying. The Bible calls marriage a gift. And did you also know that the Bible calls singleness a gift? Which is another way to say all of life, no matter your stage, no matter your circumstance, is a gift from God. Now some who are single here today will one day be married. And it's also true that some who are married today might find themselves single again. Some of our singles may be uniquely gifted to remain single for the rest of their lives for greater kingdom effectiveness. And this isn't the time and the place in the sermon to talk about all the intricacies of that. But I do want us to remember this, that our relationship with Christ is significantly more important than our marital state. Your singleness or marriedness is not the most identifying and important thing in your life. Our union with Christ provides the only lasting and true identity we need. Life in a fallen world is both beautiful and difficult. So what that means is there will be times for the married 
and for the single, that you go, there's a beauty to what is happening right now. And there will be times, whether we're married or single, that will go, this is difficult right now. Marriage has uniquely uh, beautiful and uniquely difficult things about it. And singleness has uniquely beautiful and uniquely difficult things about it. And while it is true that the majority of people at some point in time in their life will be married, that might not be the case for everyone. At the end of the day, just like Solomon said earlier, our life is in the hand of God. So to the single at Seven Mile, we love you. You are an integral part of this community. And God has so designed the family of God to have both single and married. And our hope is that as a church family, we would learn to lean into gospel friendships so that the true community and bonds of Christ are experienced by everyone, the married and the single. But the simple point that Solomon is making right here is this. If you are married, pursue depth of friendship and cultivate that marriage so that it becomes a source of enjoyment in your life. David Gibson is helpful here. He says, we are not told live with your wife or put up with your wife, but rather enjoy life with your wife. If you are too busy to enjoy the life you have together, then you are too busy. End of story. So many times I think people in marriages just kind of put up with it and go, well, this is my lot in life. And Solomon's saying, that's not what God has for you. Enjoy life. Enjoy the life you have together. Savor the simple. Enjoy marriage. And finally, verse 10, work hard. He says, whatever your hand finds to do, do it with your might. For there is no work or thought or knowledge or wisdom in Sheol to which you are going. You notice the Bible never commends one profession over another. Not not one trade over another. It doesn't say, listen, the best thing you can do in life is be a pastor. Or the best thing you can do in life is be a businessman. The Bible says, listen, whatever you do. Do it with integrity and do it as unto the Lord. So you can't steward life as a gift if you're lazy. This is the Old Testament equivalent to Colossians 3, 23 and 24. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. See, in all that we do, we're supposed to go, I serve the Lord. Whether I make lattes or I make transactions on Wall Street, it doesn't matter. I work as unto the Lord. See, our work is a good thing. It's a common grace that not only provides money to live, but it also builds an economy for society to happen. And that is a good thing. So have integrity, use the gifts God has given you, and work hard. See, one of the things about this list that's important to, to realize is it's not exhaustive. So it's not just saying, hey, have a good meal, be married and work hard. He's saying, look, these are the normal everyday realities of life. And we could think of more things. The point is this, the brevity and uncertainty of the future should propel us to be in the moment and enjoy the present. One of the things I love about this bucket list from Solomon is how ordinary it is. Did you realize that? 
He didn't say go to the farthest reaches of the earth, climb the highest mountain, go uh, to the, the deepest canyon. And I think that's the point. Yes, go do extraordinary things. Go on awesome vacations. Those things are great, and they certainly have their place in a life well lived. But I think the best way to live your life is to savor the beauty of the ordinary. Live life as if one day you will no longer have it. You know why? Because one day you won't. One day you won't. So that means we savor the everyday stuff of life. So go, ha- go hike Mount Washington. Go learn a foreign language. Go whale watching up in Gloucester. Preach the gospel to your friends and family. Plan and execute a block party. Go to the beach. Go eat at a Michelin star restaurant. And if you don't know what that means, go Google Michelin star restaurant. Plant a garden. Learn an instrument. Adopt a kid. Get a degree. Learn a new hobby. Go to a concert. Build something. Like with wood. You know, like make something, learn a new hobby, go to a concert, build something, run a marathon, do an Ironman, read a fiction book, go on a long road trip, see the Grand Canyon, go to a foreign country, kayak the Charles River, start a business, go to Fenway, see the sunrise, drive to the middle of nowhere to see the stars, go see the northern lights, perfect the art of making a steak, serve the church, disciple someone, volunteer in your community, go on a walk in the neighborhood, read a book to a kid, friends, savor the simple. This is what he's saying. Go enjoy life. Defeat death under the sun by living. That's how you defeat death. Life is meant to be spent well, so go spend it. And as you enjoy life, give thanks to God that you have breath in your lungs. Because one day you won't. Friends, you're going to die. You don't know when. So enjoy your life. So... Just a couple weeks ago as we close, traditional Judaism observed Yom Kippur, which is the Day of Atonement. You might have noticed that. You can read about Yom Kippur in Leviticus 16. Uh, Leviticus 16. It's one of my favorite chapters in the Bible. And it's the day of the year when the sins of the people are forgiven. And part of the ceremony, there's these two goats, two sacrificial goats. One is slaughtered on the altar A gruesome reminder that blood and blood alone is required to atone for sin. And the other goat is called the scapegoat. That's where we get our term scapegoat. The priest would hold that goat by the ears and he would confess the sins of the people on that goat. And as the goat's just kind of staring at the high priest, like what's going on? All the sins of the people are being laid on that goat. And then here's what they would do. They would let that goat out uh, of of the city gates into the wilderness to die. But it's symbolic to show that the sins of the people are leaving. And then at the end of the ceremony, you know what they read? They read Ecclesiastes 9-7. Go eat your bread with joy. Here's the simple idea. See, when your sins have been atoned for, when the wrath of God has been satisfied, you're truly free to eat your bread with joy. And yet, for the Jew, there's this lingering sense that always accompanies Yom Kippur. Because maybe in that moment, right then, all their sins have been paid for. And yet they know, tomorrow, I'm just going to sin again. 
And that joy will fade because we will continue to rack up more sin. And there remains a need for another atonement, another Yom Kippur, or yet a better sacrifice, a better Savior, a once-for-all sacrifice who can truly and totally atone and carry away my sin. That's the whole point of the book of Hebrews. Hebrews 10, verse 11 and 12. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. You know why Christ sits down? Because it is finished. The work is done. There's no longer a need for another sacrifice. And because Jesus is a better Savior, the once-for-all sacrifice who truly takes away our sin, that's why the Christian can eat our bread with true joy because we have eaten of the true bread of life in Jesus Christ. That's why we can stare death in the face and eat our bread with joy. Let's pray.